chapter 3 today, verses 7 through 13 is what we're going to cover. Starting in verse 7, it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, this is chapter 3, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, and what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in, my, in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, what we're going to deal with today is we're going to, I'm going to be asking some questions from this passage. Um, and so the first question I'm going to ask is, is, what are these keys of David? He, he talks about how he has, he holds, Jesus said, as you know, is the one speaking, and he describes himself as holy and true, and he holds the key of David. Now again, when you interpret Scripture, you need to use Scripture, scripture to interpret Scripture. You don't just come up with, I think this means, or I think this refers to. You've got to be real careful of those kind of teachers who say, well, I think this is refer. You need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So, we need to go looking for, is there any other place that they talk about the keys of David? Or that? So, go to Isaiah chapter 22. We're going to see verses 15 through 22. Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. And you'll see there's a place where actually these keys of David are referenced. And in this passage, you're going to see that there was a, a, an attendant, if you will, a right-hand man to the king uh, named Shebna. And he got in trouble with God, and he was removed. And Eliakim's going to be put in his place. But look at what it says here, chapter 22, starting in verse 15. It says, This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty, says. Say, Go say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace, What you, are you doing here, and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and to hurl you away, O you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will remain, you you disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office, and you will be ousted from your position." In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fashion your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David, and what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. Now, we can see here that this person was the right-hand man to the king, if you will, he had authority. For some reason, he gets in trouble with God. Some people say that he must he must have been a foreigner, and that's why the reference to what are you doing building your grave here kind of a thing. But the, the one thing I want to pull out from this passage is, is when he's removed from his place of authority, Eliakim has been given his place of authority, and he is given the keys to the household of David, it says here. And what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This, is, this person is the second in command. 
All right, so right now, what does it appear the keys reference? David's house. Offspring is tied in a little bit, as we'll see in time, and all because you see, you know, the Messiah is going to come from the lineage of David and that kind of a thing. But for the most part, right now, he's the one who controls whether or not you got access to the king, right? This person's got keys to the house. He's got. Uh, he's the one who says, "He uh, say, hey, can I go see the king?" He says, "Well, I got the keys. I'll decide." Kind of a thing. All right. So keep that in mind. Now go over to Matthew chapter sixteen. In Matthew 16, we'll start in verse 13 uh, and go to verse 20. It says, when Jesus, verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, this is a very interesting passage, and we're going to pull something out here in just a second that's kind of ironic. But first of all, when Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus says, you got that answer from my Father. You've got to keep in mind John 6, 44. No one can come to the Father unless the Spirit, the Father sent me, draws them. Okay, so Jesus said, my Father has opened your eyes to the truth of who I am and the fact that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I'm the Messiah. Now, he said, I'm, I'm going to, in time future, give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Any idea what that means? Again, what do keys refer to? Access, authority, access. If we have the keys, or Peter at least at this point, has the keys to the kingdom of heaven, how does he have access to who gets in and who gets out of heaven? Not in and out, I mean, but who gets in or who doesn't get in to heaven? Ask that again. Alright, if it, Jesus is saying, I'm in future time going to give you, because that's a key part here, he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say he had just at that moment, and that, you'll see why in just a second. He says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Alright? What does that mean? If, if, if keys refer to access, the ability to, to, to decide whether or not someone gets in or doesn't get in, what is, what is this referring to? What is the access to, the, what is the access to heaven? Salvation. Salvation. Yeah, Jesus is the door. We, he's saying to him, look, you, what you understand, I'm going to give you that position, if you will, of getting that message out. You want to get in? Here's how you get in, kind of a thing. But So he says to him, I'm going to give you this authority. I'm going to give you this position to let people know how to get in and how not in, or, 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 or so on. But look what he says in verse 20. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that it was a Christ. Isn't that kind of ironic? He says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which is the access to, the, to, to heaven, which is through Jesus Christ. And then he says, by the way, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. Just didn't say it yet. Exactly. It wasn't time for them to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven for lots of reasons. One, it wasn't God's time yet for that to happen. Secondly, did they still even know what the Christ meant? They didn't even know who he was. No, the Spirit of God had opened his eyes to the fact that you are the Christ. Yet, not long after this, Jesus says, I'm going to die. 
And Peter says, oh no, you're not. And he rebukes the same one that he just said, you are the Christ. So it's obvious he had the right answer, but he still didn't know fully what it meant. Doesn't that make you feel better? Yeah. Thank God. Me too. I mean, I know the right answer, folks. I'm going to heaven because of Jesus Christ. Do I fully understand it? No. Do I understand all His ways? No. But you know what? He's still going to let me go. I don't have to have all the right answers to have access. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, later on though, what did Jesus say? All authority of heaven and earth has been given to me. And then what does He say? Go and make disciples. In Acts chapter 1, He said... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He gave them the keys to the kingdom. And what do we, we all have that. You, have, you know the way in. You know how to get in. You can't say, well, I can't help you. I don't know how to get into heaven. Yes, you do. You know how to get into heaven. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. You've been given the keys. Now, don't start turning that into you can determine who gets in and who doesn't. I'll, I'll tell you, but I won't tell you because I want you to get in, but I don't want you to... You, don't, don't go down that road. You don't have that much authority, folks, because uh, 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 God's the one who, who, who decides who is and who doesn't actually get in. But we the one who can tell them how. We're the ones who can tell them how. And that's what he's talking about here. All right? So, when he says he has the keys of David... There's a whole lot here, but the reference to authority and control over entrance. Jesus said, I'm the one who holds the keys of David. And that referred to the line of the lineage of the Messiah, and also, as we then come on find out later on, it's also reference to the kingdom of heaven. And also in Revelation chapter 1, previously, I think it's around verse 18, he described himself as the one who holds the keys to Hades. Alright, so that's another whole study for a different time. But now he says to him, go back to Revelation chapter 3, I've got this open door for you. Because I, you know, I've, I've given, I placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And he's already just said, whatever I open, nobody can shut. Whatever I shut, no one can open. So the ultimate authority is in Jesus. Okay, so don't start thinking because you have the keys to heaven uh, that you have the ultimate authority. You don't. All right. Um, but in this instance, though, Jesus has the ultimate authority. But he says, I have, a, I have an open door. So now I need some help. Who wants to take Acts fourteen twenty seven? You got this one, AJ? Alright. I need someone to read 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 9. A room full of humble people. Alright. Martha's got it. Okay. At, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 13. Thank you. And one more. Colossians 4, 3 through 6. You got it, Nicole? Okay. I'm going to read them out to you again for those of you who don't write them down. It's Acts 14, 27. 1 Corinthians 16, 5-9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12-13, and Colossians 4, 3-6. Once again, we're taking a look at this open door and find out from looking at the whole of Scripture, or at least a touch of it for right now, what does this open door possibly mean? So, Acts 14, 27, go ahead, AJ, read that one for us. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how... He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Alright, in this instance here, the open door is what? For faith. faith. For faith. He'd opened the door for faith. Alright. Now we got 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 9. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. But it may be that I will that I will remain, or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. 
But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. All right. Well, what does it appear from this passage the open door is there in Ephesus? Opportunity. Opportunity. For what? Ministry. Ministry. And once again, the message of salvation. Alright? Again, remember how we talked about who is the one who opens the eyes? Only the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus. Okay? Remember? When Jesus sent out His disciples two by two, what did He say? When you go to a town, let your peace go out. If it's received, stay there. That means what? Father's been at work ahead of you. If it's rejected, move on. The Father hasn't done His work there yet. Or it's been rejected. Okay? So again... Who's opening the door? The opening of the door is, and it's for ministry or for salvation. So far, we can see. Go to Second Corinthians chapter two, verses twelve through thirteen. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now, this is an interesting little passage here. Paul said, "I realized when I got to this part." this city of Troas, I realized God had opened a door for me, but Paul didn't walk through it. Isn't that interesting? Well, you have to read the next verse, 14. There you go. Go ahead. Because he says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Right. He understood that even if he went somewhere else, God would still possibly use him there. In this situation, he's wanting to hear from Titus about the church in Corinth. And Titus had been given responsibility to kind of look after him. And he knew Titus was on a journey, and Paul's going up through this on this journey this way. And he knew Titus was kind of probably taking the reverse route. And he had thought Titus was going to be there in Troas, and he was going to get a message about what's going on in the church in Corinth. And he was so anxious to hear about the church in Corinth, when Titus wasn't there, he decided, even though there's an open door here, I want to find out what's going on with these people that I care about in Corinth. So he went on further to go meet with Troas. And then later on, he sent Titus with this letter uh, to the Corinthian church. Uh, Put a bookmark here and go to everybody to uh, Mark chapter 1. Listen to verses 35. Thirty-nine. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Was there an open door there, in that town where everybody's looking for him? Yeah. But Jesus said, you know what, I feel like Father wants me to go here. Even though there's an open door here, we have a tendency to kind of think that there's only one path, and if I miss it, I'm in trouble with God. But if your heart is to do the will of God, if your heart is to, 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 to follow the Lord, if your heart is to be a part of what He's doing, I actually have come to realize over the years that actually we have the mind of Christ. And there are sometimes, when we're sitting there fretting over the decision, sometimes God says, go ahead and make a choice. And it's okay. But what if I make the wrong one? Sometimes He's saying, whichever one's going to be good with me, go for it. Now, there are going to be times He's going to say, this choice and not this choice. Like when Paul tried to go into Asia, but the Spirit would not let him go there. 
We're going to have to know how to recognize the peace of God versus the rules. Give me the right and the wrong. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And we're in a living relationship, and sometimes the Father will say to you, they're both good. Go for it. Or He may say, and we've had this experience, this is a good one, but this is a better one. Right. But you're not in trouble if you take a good one. Exactly. We have a loving Father. If your heart is in the desire to obey, to walk with Him, you're going to find that sometimes He's going to say, either's good. We can't mess them up. That kind of frees us up. Is that we may make what, um, if we had the, the vision that God has, we may make what we would perceive as the wrong choice. But God can still take that choice and work His will through it. Because He's the one perfecting us. Exactly. Exactly. So, there are going to be times when the Spirit of God is going to make it really clear, this is what I want you to do. There's going to be other times that He's going to say, go ahead. Paul knew that God had opened a door there, but at the same time, he didn't have any peace. But you know what we do? We turn everything into the open door or the shut door. Ever heard that? I'm just going to see. If God opens the door, I'm going to walk through it. Not always the best way to go first. Just because the door is open doesn't mean that's exactly what God wants you to do. We are in a living relationship. And folks, if you haven't learned yet to recognize the voice of the Lord and to recognize the leading of the Spirit, take some time to begin to just spend time with Him in His Word, in prayer. You will learn to recognize His voice. You really will. But it's just something you're going to have to learn to recognize. You're going to have to say, well, how do you know when it's God talking? That's the best thing I can tell you. He said, my sheep know my voice. So either you're a sheep or you're not. If you're a sheep, you'll know His voice. You will know His voice. And one of the best ways, though, that I can give you to begin this journey, because I can't say, here's the formula, but I can tell you how to begin this journey. There's a verse in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 that says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now that word rule in the Greek actually is more like the word umpire. The umpire says safe or out. All right, You need to let the peace of Christ umpire in your hearts. Even though there was a door open, Paul said, I didn't have the peace. So, I followed what I felt was the peace. Alright? Now, again, open door, clearly here. See again, it's an opportunity for ministry of the gospel. One last one, Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Make the most of every opportunity. I love that. I love that. So what's the open door that he's given the church in Philadelphia? An opportunity to continue ministering, presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've given you an open door. It may seem like it might not be in the chaos that's going on right now in your city and the persecution you're facing and all that, but I want you to hear from me, the Lord says, you've got an open door. There's opportunities there. Keep doing what you're supposed to do. What if I don't see results? He didn't say that you would see results. He said, I've given you an open door. Just because the door's open doesn't mean they're going to listen. You understand? The door's open to share the gospel. All right? Now, Now we're going to get to the biggie for tonight. He then says to them, starting in verse 10, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. 
What is this hour of trial? We're going to deal with this in great detail here for the time that we have left here tonight. What is this coming hour of trial? Well, the first thing we can see from this, we're going to break this verse down. It's a trial. I'm in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. All right? Revelation 3.10 says, I'm going, to, I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test the, those on the earth. Alright, what do we know about trials? What, what's the purpose of a trial? Testing. Te- well, testing. And we'll get to that in a little bit more. But it's a... Guilt or innocence. Guilt or innocence. It's a... The word begins with J. It's a judgment. Alright? A trial is for the purpose of judgment. Making a judgment. Alright? Then there's parts of the trial where they make the assessment. Then there's the part of the trial where they assess the verdict and the penalty, if you will. All right. So we see right here, and I'm not going to have you turn to some of these verses uh, um, because I just want you to write them down for the sake of time. But we see here it's a trial or a time of judgment. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15, if you want to write that one down for a later study, describes this time period that we're going to be dealing with now in this hour of trial. Zephaniah 1.15 describes it as the day of the Lord's wrath. All right. Isaiah 34, verse 8, describes it as the day of the Lord's vengeance. Isaiah 34, verse 8, describes this time coming as the day of the Lord's vengeance. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi 4, 5, describes it as the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Alright? Now there are many, many, many more. I've just given you three. But we can see here that it's a time of God's judgment and we'll get to that in a little bit more in detail of the whole world, but it's a day of wrath, it's a day of vengeance, it's a great and dreadful day of the Lord. All right? So, sure, go for it. Well, if you'll stick with me, we'll answer that. But that's a good question. That's a very good question. The problem is, is when we add all these pieces together, it will answer all of that. So, but that's a good question. Since we're not looking for it, looking at them, mm-hmm. is that covenant, Lord? To be honest with you, I didn't even look. For that when I did that. I just wondered. I don't know. I just know that it's it's the capital L. Is it Yahweh? It's the capital L, Day of the Lord. Well, all the way through the Old Testament, there's this coming Day of the Lord, which everybody knew was the final day of the Lord. This is what it's referring to. Okay? And we see next in this passage, it's not only a time of trial or judgment, it is coming. It's a time is coming still. Alright? And so, in Matthew 24, go to Matthew 24, verse 21. Jesus references this day in Matthew 24, verse 21. And again, he describes it as a time that will be. It's still future. Okay? In Matthew 24, verse 21, it says in verse 21, For then there will be a great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Alright? Again, referring to that time period on the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, What I want you to understand, and we're not going to get into now, we will deal with later in the study of Revelation, is one of the problems we've had with Matthew 24 over the years is we've tried to read the church into Matthew 24. And Jesus wasn't speaking to the church, really, in Matthew 24. He was speaking to the Jews. You see, most of us who are a little bit on the older side of the people in the room, we grew up in a time period where most churches taught, without even really knowing what it was, something called replacement theology where they taught that all the promises for Israel are now being fulfilled in the church. Well, you have to understand where this all came from. For the first almost 2,000 years of the church age, there was no Israel. You have to keep in mind, 
for all the beginning, the, the nation of Israel existed at the time of Pentecost when the church was started, and you know, and then not many years later, in AD 70, God's judgment and punishment to the nation of Israel for the rejection of the Messiah came down, and He scattered them to all the nations of the earth. It wasn't a, we know where Israel is, they're in captivity in Babylon. No, there was no Israel in the eyes of the world. God knows where His remnant is, He knows who His people are, but He scattered them to all over the face of the earth, as He said He would. Now, all the way through the Old Testament, there were prophecies of how in the very last days he would gather them back from all the nations he scattered them to and bring them back into the land. But you have to keep in mind, for almost 2,000 years of the church age, there was no Israel. So all these Bible teachers and Bible scholars and interpreters of the Scriptures would keep reading about these promises for Israel, and that made no sense. What Israel? There's no Israel. That must mean the church. And so for years we have been taught that Anytime you talk, you read about promises to Israel, it just put the church in there because the church has replaced Israel. That's what they call replacement theology. Well, now all of a sudden, since 1948, a great bugaboo has started to happen to those people because now all of a sudden there's a chance that maybe there was, maybe that meant Israel. Because all of a sudden now Israel became a nation just like that. And if you know anything about the wars that went on at that time, if you like to study uh, history of battles and things like that, Go do a study of what really happened during the Six-Day War in 1967 and the battle that happened in uh, the battles in that time around the nation of Israel. You will read Old Testament Bible stories of miracles of, that were happening. I'm not kidding you. Actual historical accounts of these battles. They're going to read like the Old Testament Bible stories of God pr- protecting the nation of Israel. Someone, I mean, one story I remember reading about was uh, this: uh, these people there in this tank that they were. Jews in this one tank, and it was running out of gas, and they still had miles to go, and they were running from the enemy, and somehow, some way, they don't know how, they were able to go many, many miles with an empty tank. I mean, they ran out of gas, and the thing kept running. They're a story, the, the weapons they had back then, because they were such a small, tiny nation, they, didn't, they had old Russian army, <laughs> old, old firearms, and they used to have to fire them, dunk them in a bucket of cold water to cool them off, and fire them again because they'd get too hot. Again, the miracle of all these surrounding nations, the, the, the Muslim countries, wanting to wipe them off the face of the earth, and God spared them. And so now, all of a sudden, many theologians are starting to realize, you know what, maybe God's not done with Israel. And as you really start to look at Scripture, you'll start to realize that God, at some points, was speaking to the church, and at other points, He was speaking to the nation of Israel. And in Matthew 24, which had many for years have been taught to speak to the church... Actually, he was speaking to the Jews at this time. And so he says, There will be a great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Alright? So from that reference of Jesus, has it happened yet? No. No. Another thing we can see, not only is it a time future or time coming, it's going to happen to the whole world. There have been some bad stuff that's happened over the years and over the, over the world. And here, pockets. But the scripture here says, go back to Revelation 3.10, it's going to come on what? It's going to come on the whole world. You see, it's going to happen on the whole earth. Now, I'm not going to take the time to, to show you them. You can find them for yourself. But in the book of Revelation, ten times it said, describing what's going to be going on during this time period, it, ten times it says, to the whole earth, to the whole world, to all the inhabitants of the earth. Ten times it's, it's said to that said that way. All right, and so keep that in mind. This is going to happen to the whole world. All right, so we know this much. 
that this time that is referenced is going to be a trial, it's going to be a time of judgment, it's going to happen to the whole world in its future. And it's going to be so unbelievably bad, it will be nothing like ever has happened before, and it will never be equaled again. Now keep in mind, this is also counting the flood. Has anybody even considered that? If the Bible's true, which it is, it can't be even compared to the flood. It's going to be worse than the flood. As you will see when we go through the study of Revelation, as he describes what's going to be happening on the earth during that time period, and you do the math of how many people are killed here, and how many people are left on the earth, and how many people are killed here, and how many are left on the earth, and what's really going on, it's actually going to make you wish you were part of the flood if you were alive at that time. Because the flood happened, and everybody was over, and it was quick. This isn't going to be like that. Alright? So, what is the purpose? The Bible says here in Revelation 3.10 is to what? To test those who live on the earth. Now, what is the purpose of a test? Pass or fail. Pass or fail. See if you're ready. Well, see, this is a good question. Andrew says to see if you're ready. See, he's still in school. And most of us that have been in the world's education, um, if you had a professor or or a teacher that gave you a test, did the teacher know how you were going to do? Typically not. You know, they, they taught you, then they gave you the test to find out how you do, and they grade you. But this test is being is being being executed, if you will, by God. Does He already know how we're going to do? Of course He does. So, what's the purpose of this test? It can't be for God to find out how everybody's going to fare. It's going to show us and those around us who's who, if you will. Let me show you a couple examples of that. Go to uh, John chapter six. Read verses 1 through 6 for us. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for their people to for these people to eat? He asked the only he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Alright. In this situation, Jesus gave Philip a test. Again, he already knew what the answer Philip's response was going to be. He was showing Philip. I've, some of you heard me use this illustration before when your kids were little and they told you one morning that they could dress themselves. You gave them a test, right? Now, you already knew the results. You knew that they weren't ready to test themselves. But the only way they would know what you already knew was to do what? Give the test. Now, when they came out with the pants on their head and asking for help, you were then able to take them to learn what you already knew. Here's who you really are. This is a part of the reason for a test. That's part of the reason the test is you're not where you think you are. All right? Go to 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. There's another example of the purpose of a test. Somebody read verses 6 and 7 for us in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, he just talked about our salvation, how wonderful our salvation is, how it's kept in heaven for us. Then he said, we've had to suffer trials and all kinds of griefs. Why have we been tested? To bring God glory and to show what? And to prove that your faith is genuine. See, there are going to be some people that think they're okay, and the test is going to show that they're not. There are going to be some that are okay, and the test is going to prove that they are. Alright? And another perfect perfect example of that is going to be in Matthew uh, chapter... Sorry, let's go to Luke's gospel. That would be a better example of it. Go to Luke chapter 8, verses 11 through 10. 12 and 13. Luke chapter 8. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Here again. What's the purpose of the test? It's to show where everybody actually stands. You see, when things are smooth and easy, man thinks he can live independent of God. When do we get reminded in this life right now that we can't live independent of God? (laughs) When the trial comes, when the test comes, right? But it will show whether or not we run back to our Lord in faith, or whether or not we turn our backs on him and say, he let me down. I was praying for this, it didn't happen, or my mother died, or I lost the job, or whatever it was. And there are going to be those who turn their back on God because he's not there for them. And the Bible, as you're going to see as we go through the book of Revelation, there are going to be those who in this time are going to call out to God to be saved. There are going to be those during this time who are going to just thumb their noses at God. You'll be amazed as we keep reading through Revelation of all the stuff that's going on. How in the world could they not come to faith? But they don't. There'll be some that just say, I don't care. It's just an amazing, and amazing thing. Alright? So, what do we know about this hour trial? It's going to be a time of judgment. Now again, it's the hour of trial. It's a time period. Again, it's not literally an hour. It's a time period. Are we in it right now? I have one yes, one no. I think we're in it the entire time we're here on the earth. We're in a time of testing, but I'm talking about this hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world. Are we in this no, I one? Think that, that's after yeah, I, like, it's right. This is the tribulation period here. Very good. We are in a time of testing. We're all being tested. The Bible says examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. You know, there, there, there's continual testing that goes on now. But this isn't the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world. And this is not the hour of trial that is going to be unequaled, you know, in its horrificness, if you will, in all the history of the world. And I can even show you that this is not the day of the Lord's wrath and vengeance right now because of a passage in Isaiah chapter 61. It's a very famous passage because it's one that Jesus read when He went into His hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And after He read it, when they all knew full well that it was a Messiah passage, one speaking of the Messiah, when He read it, He said, it's been fulfilled in your hearing, and they got mad because they knew what He was saying. They knew He was saying He was the Messiah. Alright, look at Isaiah 61. Look at what it says. 
says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release for the, from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's what? Favor. Time of the, the Lord's favor, and then the day of vengeance of our God. Right now, we're in the time of the Lord's favor. We're in the age of grace, if you will. The church age. But at the end, and I love how you put it, it, when the rapture happens, and we're going to deal with that tonight, that age of grace, the year of the Lord's favor comes to an end, and then begins the time of the Lord, the day of the Lord that the Old Testament has been prophesying about. Alright? So, here's the question we're going to kind of deal with in our time that we have left. Will the church be kept from this coming hour of trial, or will they be spared through it? Now, let me explain why I'm asking this question. Most of you would say, well, you know, it's pretty simple. Well, there are those who think that this word from, translated from, meant that they're gonna, the church will still be in it, it just they'll be spared. Okay? Kind of like Daniel, and, I'm sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were put into the fire, but it didn't affect them. There are those, because they say it's the Greek word ek, which means it can be either taken out of or spared through. There are those who try to teach that the church will go through, if not all of the tribulation period, a portion of the tribulation period. That's why you have people called pre-tribulational people. That means they believe the rapture or the gathering of the church will happen before the tribulation. There are mid-tribulationists which believe that at the midway point of the tribulation, right before it even gets worse, the church will be taken out at that point. There are people that are called post-tribulationists who believe the church will go all the way through it and then at the end they'll be gathered. And they teach, those people that believe either mid or post, especially the post, they teach that here Jesus is saying that they'll go through it but they'll be spared. I want to suggest to you tonight that I can prove to you scripturally that the Bible teaches that the church will be taken out before it happens. Alright? And one of the answers is right there in verse 11. Right after he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come to the whole world to test those within the earth. What does he say next? I'm coming soon. He didn't say, hang on, it's going to be a real rocky road, but I'll get you through it. He says, I'm going to keep you from it and I'm coming soon. It's almost like I'm going to come get you, correct? But I can even a better evidence. I get a better evidence than that. Go to Revelation chapter 6. And read with me as I start in verse 9. Now again, keep in mind, as we read this, picture those who think the church is going to be in the tribulation but spared. Okay? Listen to what it says. Verse 9, And when He, Jesus, opened the fifth seal... By the way, there isn't a theologian, a scholar on the earth that doesn't believe that these seals are being opened during the tribulation. Okay, so we're in the tribulation period. We're in this last time period. When Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. If this is referring to the church, is the church being spared during this time period? No. Keep reading. Go over to chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders, and I'll come back to that in a second, asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And then he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There are many people who are going to be killed for their faith during the tribulation period. And actually the Bible teaches anyone who does come to faith in the tribulation period will most likely be killed almost instantly. So for those that teach that the church is going to go through the tribulation but be spared, the Bible doesn't teach that believers will be spared during the tribulation period. It actually teaches they'll be martyred. These people that are being killed for their faith are not the people in the church. These are the tribulation saints, if you will. He will gather His church at the end of the church age. We'll go off to the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether good or worthless, as the Scripture says. We'll then go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the Bible says at the end of this time period on the earth, we will come back with Him as He rules and reigns. And there's another interesting little picture here that shows that the church will already be in heaven. It says... It saw the elders and said one of the elders, as we will get to in chapter 4 and 5, the elders that are referenced here in the book of Revelation are actually the church. The church is going to be sitting on thrones around the throne, ruling with Jesus, and I'll prove that to you and show it to you when we get to that in time. But the church is already in heaven when this happens. And so the answer to this question is, is will the church go through this hour trial? No, they won't. They'll be kept from it before it happens. Alright, now, and we'll get to a couple more things about that in a second. Some might say, well, Jim, this was written to the church in Philadelphia. That doesn't mean we won't be spared. It just meant they were going to be spared because, no. Look at the last verse, verse 13. Somebody read that for us good and loud. Yeah, chapter 3, verse 13. Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Alright, that word churches, is that singular or plural? He's not writing just to the church in Philadelphia. This is a message that's also to us. Folks, if these messages of these letters to the churches were just for those churches, all we would need to do is study them as historical letters. But it's not to be studied that way. This is to us. This is a lie. That's why Jesus told John, write it down. I got a message to the churches. And it's going to be sent to these seven literal churches in that area in that time period, but it's not just for them. It's for all those who are part of the body of Christ. We will be spared. Now, let's deal with this imminent rapture of the church. Another evidence to the fact that the Scripture teaches that the rapture of the church or the gathering of the church will happen before all this stuff happens, this great judgment at the end of the world, is the fact of the fact that the Bible teaches it's imminent. Right? Right? All the way through, Jesus says, be ready. You don't know. It's going to happen at a time. You know, get, Be watching. Be on the alert. There's an expectation. Paul expected it to happen in his time. All the believers had this sense of it was going to happen in their time. And we need to as well. But if 
it wasn't going to happen until the midpoint of the tribulation or the end of the tribulation. It is not imminent. If that's what the Bible taught, I could tell you, you will not be raptured tonight. You know how I could tell you that? It's because the temple hasn't been rebuilt yet. And the Antichrist has to set foot in the, in the temple. The Antichrist hasn't signed the peace treaty with Israel yet. That hasn't happened. All these things that we're going to be reading about that are going to happen during this time period haven't happened yet. Therefore, I could look you in the eye and say, don't worry, it's not going to happen tonight. And even Jesus said he doesn't know. Yeah, he knows now. But if the, when he was on the earth as a, as a man, he didn't know the time. But the day has been set, according to Acts chapter 13. The day has been set by God when he's going to judge the world. So here's the deal. It has to be a pre-tribulational rapture of the church for it to be imminent. Otherwise, it couldn't be. And so, this is good news, folks. This is great news. People say, well, you're just a pre-tribulationist because that's the easy one. I tell them the truth. It's the best one for sure. Oh, yeah. But it's not why I believe it. And we will get into more reasons scripturally why as we go through the study of Revelation. I'm going to be covering many. I, just, I thought I would take a whole study to do that. And I thought, you know, that's not necessary because I think the Bible will illustrate it to you as we continue to go through it. All the different reasons. I could, give you, I could sit here for a whole hour and walk you through why the scripture teaches that the church will be gathered before this great vengeful day of the Lord. But right now we know this much. He's promised the church, I will keep you from it. I'll keep you from it. It's not for you. You're being shaped right now. 1 Peter 4.17, now it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. He's shaping us. He's putting us through trials. He's putting us through refining fire. He's conforming us to the image of His Son. But when He's done with us here on the earth, He's going to take us to be with Him. And then He will deal with the nation of Israel and the rest of those on the earth. Oh, the good news is there will be people still coming to faith during that time period. People say, well, Jim, isn't the Holy Spirit removed when He gathers the church? No. The Holy Spirit's not removed. Here's how I can prove it to you. Nobody could be saved if the Holy Spirit were totally taken off the earth during the tribulation. No one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. So the Holy Spirit will still be active on the earth during the tribulation period. But His activity through the church will no longer be active. And that's why in the book of Thessalonians it says the Antichrist will not be revealed until he who restraineth, as it says in the King James, he who restraineth is taken out of the way. Who is he who restraineth? It's the Holy Spirit's working through the church, the salt and the light. What do you know about salt? It was a preservative. Back before our day of freezers and ice machines, how they kept something from decaying faster anyway was they packed it in salt. Salt was a preservative. And that's why Jesus said if salt is lost its saltiness, what good is it? The church, unfortunately, in many parts of the world is losing its saltiness. We're looking so much like the world, it's hard for anybody to see the difference. Lost people can be members of our church and we'll never know because we put them in leadership because they seem like wonderful people. But the Bible says that the true church is going to be gathered and taken out. And when He removes His bride, when He removes the church, the Holy Spirit's working through the salt and the light will be removed. And oh, can you even imagine what our world would be like right now if the church weren't here? Oh, I know they don't listen to us much. I know they call us terrorists. I know they call us right-wing, you know, all this kind of extreme. I know they see us as wackos, but you know what? They at least know that if they try stuff, they're going to hear something. Correct? Can you imagine what the world would be like if the church were gone? It's going to happen. And it's going to happen, I believe, fairly soon. 
I really, really believe that. No one knows the day or the hour, but I'm going to tell you an honest statement. If I'm here ten years from now, I'll be shocked. I will be shocked. That's how much I'm sensing from my understanding of the Scriptures, watching all the pieces come together, I think is happening. So, we need to be watching and ready. Thank God He's going to come get us, but don't just let's not all sit around and have punch and cookies and wait till He comes and gets us. What did He tell the Philadelphia church? I have given you what? An open door. The keys. If we're still... Every morning I say, Lord, if you need one more vote <laughs> to determine whether or not today's the day of the rapture, I cast it right now. And then, I then say, but if you don't come today, your word tells us in Peter that the reason you seem slow is because you're not wanting anyone to perish. So I'm looking. I actually had a chance to talk to a guy today named Randy. His name's Randy Brown. Every Tuesday that I go speak at this uh, Men in Motion thing at First, at, uh, First uh, sorry, Central Baptist in Melbourne, I, it's a group of men that all work at Harris and other companies, and they take a lunch break, and they come over to Central Baptist, and they get a lunch, and they sing a song, and then they listen to me preach when I'm in town. and I do it pretty regularly. And a lot of times, I'll go to this park not far from Central Baptist Church, and I go there until the time when I'm supposed to come preach. And I go there just to talk to the Lord, look over my notes a little bit, and mainly just pray. Well, for years now, I have been parked there in one car sitting there, and there's always been another car parked. And a man will get out of that car, and he'll go over to a little picnic bench under a shade there, and he'll just read a book. And for years, I've been seeing him do that. I've been preaching at Central now for two to three, maybe four years, maybe more. That'll be more. Did it while I still in the Atlantic? It's been six years. How about that? Well, uh, so what happens is, is I've been seeing him for years sitting there. And today, as I started my car back up and started to head over to Central to preach, the Spirit of God said, why don't you invite him to come? And I literally got out onto Country Club Boulevard and did a U-turn right there, went back to the park, got out of my car and said, hey, let me just explain. You and I have been seeing each other for years, sitting in our cars, or you sitting there reading, my name's Jim Johnson, and I actually am coming Tuesdays to come here and just pray before I go preach to a group of men. They're all from different churches, and uh, I've never invited you. Would you be interested in coming? He didn't come. He didn't come. But he was very, very pleased that I would take the time to come and invite him, and he introduced himself. My name's Randy Brown, and from now on, I'm going to say, Hey, Randy, do you want to come today? And that's the whole thing. And we'll let God do what God's going to do. But I prayed in the morning, Lord, if you're ready to come get us, today's a good day. But if not, there's a reason why. And I'm looking for those opportunities. Make the most of every opportunity. You don't have to lead them to the Lord. Just plant the seed. Let the Lord take it from there. So folks, be encouraged. He's going to come get us. He's going to come get us. But don't just sit there waiting for Him to come get you. Be a bit about what He's asked us to do. Now, the last thing, and then we'll close with this. You'll see the promise to them. Now, I have not understood the depth of what's really going on here to His promise, except for my study now of what had been happening in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, the city of Philadelphia was uh, named after this one guy, Attalus, who had a real deep love for his brother, Eumenes, I think it's something like that. And so because of his love for his brother, and he was kind of a leader in that town, they named the town Philadelphia, which you, mean, you know means brotherly love. Um, yet, over the years, when different emperors would come into power in Rome and the city's desire to be pleasing to the Romans, they would change their name. 
and they would change it to be in honor of this person, and then they'd go back to be in Philadelphia. And then later on, they changed it again in, in honor of this person, and then it went back to be in Philadelphia. And actually now, uh, some of your study Bibles will tell you what the name of the city is now. It begins with an A, and I can't even pronounce it, but it's not even called Philadelphia today. And at the same time, it's also in a volcanic area where there were a lot of earthquakes. It was very fertile ground because of the volcanic soil. But at the same time, there were a lot of earthquakes throughout its history and the aftershocks. And it was well known that the people in that city, whenever the aftershocks would come, they would run out of the city because they didn't want stuff falling on them. And they'd run out of the city until it was over, then they'd go back. Listen to what Jesus says to them, knowing their history. Him who overcomes, verse 12, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. What do you know about pillars? Come down in an earthquake. Yeah, well, they come down, to, they come down in an earthquake, but what do they do? Hold they up. hold things up. They're the strength of the building. And he said, whoever overcomes, I'm going to make you a, t- a pillar in the temple of my God. And you'll never have to run out for your life again. And then he says, and I'm going to write my name on you. You've had a whole bunch of names. You probably don't even know what your name is. But I'm going to give you my name. And it's going to stick. Isn't that cool? Folks, we're living in a time where everything's changing. Everything's chaotic. Everything's crazy. The Lord says, just hang on. Be faithful. Stick to my word. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to right the wrongs in the end. You do what I've asked you to do. I've asked you to live the truth. I've asked you to be obedient to me. I've asked you to share the good news. I'm going to keep you from as bad as it is. It's about to get real bad. And I'm going to keep you from that. So be encouraged with that. But just keep going. Just keep going. Questions, thoughts before we... Close us up. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank You for this chance to come and open Your Word. Thank You for the the fun I had just preparing and even tonight just teaching uh, this power to the Scriptures that deals with the city of Philadelphia and the church especially there and Your message to them and the fact that it's also to us. Lord, may we, without being guilted into it, just because of our love for You and our desire to be obedient to You, walk through the open door that we've been given. The opportunity we have. And Lord, may at the same time, as things continue to escalate, may these tests prove that our faith is genuine. And thank You for the fact that as tough as these tests are, they're nothing like what's going to happen and You're keeping us from those. Thank You for that. But Lord, at the same time, there are probably friends and family that we love that we don't want to go through what's going to go on as we're going to continue in our study and read about what's going to happen on the earth. As we do that, put a burden on our hearts for them that is so strong that we have to share with them even though we may be rejected, even though we may be scorned, even though we may be mocked. May the burden of the reality of Your Word be so powerful that that will supersede any fear of what their reaction will be. Lord, may we love them as you do. We pray this in Jesus' name.